Rafael Nadal, who is one of the best tennis players in the world. He has an enormous and very elaborate sequence of rituals that he performs in every game that range from paying attention to not stepping on the lines to jumping up and down when the coin is tossed to always taking two towels, folding one and using the other, having two bottles of water facing precisely the right angle, and then drinking from only one of those bottles of water. Behaviors that resemble Catholics crossing themselves, only much more elaborate, and it goes on and on and on. Friends, welcome to a load of BS podcast with me, Daniel Ross, where we continue to explore why on earth you behave as you do, why you constantly make flawed emotional decisions and what's going on in that jelly in your head. So if that gets you going, please stick around for plenty of entertainment and self-improvement. Now, the keen-eyed amongst you will have noticed that I didn't publish a podcast last week. I'm making a couple of small changes to my schedule to make the whole experience better for you, my listeners. A number of you fed back that you'd prefer conversations to remain as whole rather than split into two parts, but then land every other week rather than weekly. So I think that's going to work well for all of us. You get a longer and full interview to enjoy, but proper time to digest and enjoy it. Now, in doing that, I'm going to make a little adjustment to my newsletter and move that from Mondays to Thursdays. So from now on, you'll get one email from me a week, alternating between a podcast and some written word. The latter will change from Monday BS to a load of BS shorts, with everything unified under the a load of BS umbrella. So branding exercises over to today's show, and this is one I've been really looking forward to sharing with you. I'm talking to anthropologist and cognitive scientist Dr. Dimitris Zigalatas, who is an expert in rituals, whether religious, sporting, tribal, individual, collective or otherwise. Now, rituals are part of all our lives, unconsciously so sometimes, whether it's birthdays, pre-match warm-up exercises or religious ceremonies, we're familiar mainly with low-intensity repetitive ones. It's the more intense extreme rituals in particular which fascinate me for their arousing nature, their extravagance their social breadth and their emotional and physiological consequences, like the Tapusam Kavadi body-piercing festival in Mauritius or the firewalking celebrations in San Pedro Manrique, Spain. On top of these highly pro-social rituals, we also address how synchrony affects gatherings and the collective effervescence, goose steps and goose bumps of very anti-social Nazi parades. So Demetrius is going to walk us through all these ideas and more. I think you'll enjoy it. Dimitris, welcome to A Load of BS. It's my great pleasure to welcome you here. Hi, Daniel. It's great to be here. Great. Now, we were introduced by our mutual friend, Dr. Jesse Bering, whose specialist subject is evolutionary taboos, subjects like suicide, sexuality, fetish, and the afterlife. And so your area of particular interest, the study of rituals, seems to me a very natural consequence of my conversations with Jesse, because today is really another opportunity to explore types of human behavior, which are sometimes extremely mundane and regular, so much so that we repeat them with barely a thought and some so extreme and unusual, but no less entrenched, powerful and valuable for smaller numbers of people. They take us to fascinating communities around the world, some in most ways attuned to what we would call modern societies, others more remote, tribal and disconnected from our very overconnected world. So let me start by asking you, Dimitris, why are you interested in rituals? What is it that intrigues you and enthralls you so much about them? I've been interested in ritual ever since I was a student. And the reason, at least it's obvious to me, is that ritual is a really puzzling piece of human behavior. If you think about all of the things that we do as humans, we strive to procure food, to establish relationships, to have shelter, to prosper, and all of those things that make immediate sense to us. When we look at ritual behavior, these are precisely the types of behaviors that make no sense. And sometimes we might not think about it when we look at our own rituals. We might not even realize that we, we practice rituals, but it's very obvious when we look at the rituals of other people. And from that, it's a small step to realizing that we too engage in those kinds of behaviors that are deeply meaningful to us. And a lot of the time, we don't even know why we practice them. And this is exactly why I'm interested in this, because this is one of the most puzzling aspects of human behavior, especially given how universal it is. There's never been a society, as far as we can tell, that has no rituals. 
So before we dive into the detail and no doubt some illustration of rituals, just tell us what rituals are and from the sublime to the ridiculous, firstly, what they are, but why do you think they're such a fundamental, prevalent part of what makes us human? By ritual, and of course, sometimes anthropologists joke and they'll say that there are as many definitions of ritual as there are scholars of ritual. So you can define ritual in whatever way you like, but when we study it scientifically, it's important to provide a clear definition of what we mean by ritual. So when I talk about ritual, I refer to stereotypical sequences of actions that are causally opaque and a lot of the time they're goal-demoted. What does that mean? Causal opacity has to do with the fact that ritual actions have no obvious direct causal relationship with the effects that they're supposedly bringing about. So if I perform a rain dance, there's no causal connection between my movements, my bodily movements, and rain falling from the sky. Now, a lot of the time, not always, but much of the time, rituals are also goal-demoted. And that means that when you ask people why they perform their rituals, they actually don't have a clear answer. A lot of the time, ritual is the goal in itself. This is the ultimate goal to actually perform the ritual as it is supposed to be done. And anthropologists know this very well. I myself have asked hundreds, if not thousands of people this question, why do you perform your rituals? And it's the same people that swear that this is one of the most meaningful events in their entire life. They look at me very puzzled and they just blank out and they they say, well, what do you mean? This is just what we do. I don't need an explanation for why I do my rituals. It's our tradition. So we do them because our parents have done them and their parents before them. And it's part of who we are. We just do them. It seems to me, actually, that some of the most harmless, we might say normalized rituals, are actually some of the most important. I have often wondered, how would we function as a species if, for example, we suddenly eliminated handshaking and asking, how are you? This takes us to the functions of rituals. So why are they so meaningful to us? And we can answer this question by looking at both their functions for individuals and their functions for human communities. So in broad lines, we can say that rituals for the individual, they provide a sense of comfort and they help alleviate anxiety. They help us get through life. They're mechanisms, mental tools, if you like, for coping and for stress reduction. At the social level, they are very powerful mechanisms for community building, for bringing people together for creating bonds between individuals. I'm interested also for you as a scientist, as a student, as a researcher, how you piece together the history and tradition of a ritual. I wonder, is there a theoretical framework to study and analyze them? How do you go about it? If I take an evolutionary view of of ritual, it's easy to see some of those functions of ritual in humans because they also go way back in time, evolutionarily speaking. There are studies, for example, that show that rituals serve to alleviate anxiety in humans and that they serve the same function in other animals. In my own work, I've done studies with my colleagues where we stressed people up and we measure their behavior. And according to our operationalization of ritual, so we talk about aspects of ritual such as repetition and redundancy and rigidity of behavior, we see that people, the more stressed they get, the more ritualized their movements become. Now, there's a lot of research from animal behavior that shows that other species too, when they become stressed, they engage in these same stereotypical action patterns. So presumably because they serve the same function for them that we have done documented among humans, because in other studies, we see the consequences of that. And we see that when people do engage in those ritualized behavioral patterns, whether it's in a lab or whether it's in a religious temple, it does help them reduce anxiety. And this is something we can see in their heart rates, in their heart rate variability. We can see it in their electrodermal activity. We can see it in their cortisol levels. So all kinds of measures of anxiety. We see evidence that ritual actually helps people reduce their anxiety. So I did want to ask you, you mentioned animals. I was curious whether actually rituals are purely the domain of Homo sapiens. Clearly not. So animals do have rituals as well. Can you give some examples of animal ritual or non-Homo sapiens animal rituals? As it happens with a lot of aspects of human behavior that we have taken, or some scholars have taken for a very long time to be unique to humans, it often turns out that we just haven't looked at. Once we start looking at the animal world, we see that a lot of the things that we think make us uniquely human, things that range from morality to tool use to tool making, and ritual is no different. It's another domain where we also see that it's abundant in the animal world. There's a famous experiment conducted by B.F. Skinner, the psychologist, who put 
pigeons in those devices that became known as Skinner boxes. And there's a lever there that if you press this lever, something happens, either a reward or a punishment. But at some point, Skinner wanted to see what happens if he induces cows. So he started releasing food pellets at random intervals. And what the pigeons did in response is essentially come up with those rituals. They started performing these elaborate dances that were idiosyncratic to each individual, but all of them did their own version, trying to influence the outcome. Now, this is a very simple type of ritual response. But looking at the animal world, we see that, for example, dolphins appear sometimes to have something that resembles a death ritual. So when an individual perishes, they might form circles pushing that individual afloat. Elephants certainly seem to have an understanding of death and very often engage in what in humans we would describe as pilgrimages, where they travel very long distances for days to visit the bones of the deceased individuals of the group, especially if it's a matriarch. When somebody dies, an individual, and sometimes they even do this with other species, they seem to try to bury them. They use branches and dirt trying to bury a corpse. Chimpanzees have all these greeting rituals, but they also have these collective dances. Jane Goodall, who was the first one to observe chimpanzees in their natural habitat documented a lot of these rituals. So as I said, for a very long time, we just assumed that humans were different in all kinds of ways. And by sticking to that assumption, we had never looked for similar behaviors. And the more we look, the more we see that ritual is abundant in the natural world, not just in the sense of those very simplistic types of rituals that we tend to assume are simply automatic, like mating rituals in birds, but very often they take very elaborate forms, just like they do in humans. Having said that, humans are the only species that takes this ritual behavior to a whole other level. And this is an important observation because we might think that a ritual is a sort of mental glitch because it has no obvious utility, that it's just a waste of time. And therefore, we would expect, if that were true, to see that smarter animals would rely less on ritual and more intellectual or physical skill. In fact, when we look at nature, we see the exact opposite. Smarter animals tend to have more rituals and more elaborate ones. And of course, the animal that in all modern we consider to be the smartest of all, which is ourselves, we have more rituals by far than any other animal. It's interesting, you sort of answered a question that I was contemplating, which is the degree to which you would study animal rituals as a means to learn about human rituals and to sort of study the comparisons, similarities and differences. But back to human rituals. Now, as I understand it, let's do some simple categorization. There are broadly three types of rituals. We could start with, firstly, what you might call low-key repetitive rituals, which are often about, I think you touched on this, reducing anxiety, giving some sense of control. That would be, say, one. Then secondarily, one might call these arousing rituals, and this category might belong to, say, sports fans. And then finally, collective rituals, which are about fostering group cohesion and loyalty. These often seem to be more extreme, sometimes involve some level of pain. But if you accept that broad categorization. Then let's start, if, if I may, with the first type, low-key repetitive rituals. Are we talking here primarily about continuous obsessions and compulsions, or can these be far more benign too? They can certainly be more benign. So a lot of people, both from anthropology and psychology, have made this comparison explicitly between OCD, obsessive compulsive behavior, or other types of pathological ritualization and cultural rituals. There certainly does seem to be a lot of similarity there. The question is whether cultural rituals are just another form of pathological behavior, as some people have argued, or some form of mental glitch, perhaps a less exaggerated form of OCD, or as some other anthropologists have argued, whether OCD is simply a manifestation of this deeply ingrained human need for ritual going off the rails. So an exaggerated version of an otherwise adaptive response to behavioral stressors. And I would argue that it is the latter. So for the vast majority of human beings, those rituals actually play important adaptive roles. Sometimes, however, we see that things might go wrong. People might become really obsessed with performing those rituals. And this is just one symptom of what we call obsessive compulsive behavior, which is actually part of, the, of its symptomology is hyper-ritualization. If we look at the archaeological record, we will see that one of the earliest signs of behavioral modernity for Homo sapiens is, in fact, ritual behavior. And of course, the most evident ritual behavior there is burial. There are a lot of debates on whether specific findings from some of our ancestors constitute 
intentional burials. But by the time we get to modern Homo sapiens, there's absolutely no doubt. And in fact, those burials are considered as one of the hallmarks of behavioral and cognitive modernity because they necessitate things like a clear understanding of the concept of death, symbolic thought, and symbolic expression. These are the kinds of things that we tend to associate with ritual. Because when I think of ceremonies, I particularly think of, say, royal ceremonies, like the kind we have a lot of here in the UK. They're carried out with such splendor, excess and pageantry. But it's particularly <laughs> curious when there's no meaningful power which is being conferred, but yet they're so important part of our society. Pageantry is very important in, in ritual, especially in the types of collective rituals that we tend to associate with very important events. In a sense, there's some learned circularity here because it seems intuitive to us, but it's also learned through socialization that every important moment in our lives is marked by ceremony. And also that more important moments in our lives are, are marked by more flamboyant ceremonies. Therefore, we can't help but inferring that when we see something shrouded in ceremony, that it must be a very important moment. That's what our brain perceives. We have evidence that people perceive efficacy in ritual actions. And in fact, the, the more bells and whistles are involved, the more important the moment feels. In a sense, our brain is telling us, pay attention to this moment, remember this moment, because something magnificent is happening. We could observe something like a coronation ceremony in any kind of society, and we, we would have no idea what is actually happening. But the one thing we'll be sure of is that something momentous is happening, something very important to those people, if they're encircling it in ritual. In parallel to that, and I take this example actually from an article you wrote about, say, populist leaders with real power who also like ritual exuberance. And I remember you wrote about Donald Trump for his inauguration, who reportedly requested a military march complete with tanks, missile launchers and jet fighters. So to ask the question, you know, how often are rituals more about style than substance? Well, it's true that populists are successful precisely because they're able to tap into people's instincts. And we do instinctively, we cannot help but assume that something that is shrouded in, in ceremony must be an important event. And this is something both religious and political leaders have known since time immemorial. And this is why you see the flip side of ritual is that it is used by all sorts of totalitarian regimes who have enormous marches and military parades. But you also see that in those countries that have unelected heads of state, royalty, invariably you will see that the rituals pertaining to royalty will be much more flamboyant than the ones pertaining to the elected officials. So in Britain, for example, you see that the coronation of a new king will be far more elaborate, far more costly, far more flamboyant than the inauguration of a new prime minister. There's a definite inverse relationship. I observed that as well. Let's talk about the second category of rituals. What we might call arousing rituals. And sort of sport perhaps is an obvious illustrator of this type of ritual. But why is sport such a powerful ritual? There are a lot of parallels between sports and religion. There are limits to these similarities, but they are there. For example, religious affiliation and sports affiliation in terms of fanship, they both begin by action rather than belief. In the vast majority of cases, people don't go to church because one day they have a revelation. They go to church because their parents take them. Typically, they go to the stadium for the same reason. Their parents take them, their, their friends take them. But then it is through their, their participation itself, through taking part in those rituals that are enacted, whether in church or in the stadium, the collective chanting, the collective shouting, the high arousal you see in the stadium, it is through these actions that they force their sense of identity with this group and their sense of loyalty to this group. So in a sense, everything that is happening in the terraces in a, in a football stadium resembles a, a high arousal ceremony that you might find in many religious contexts. I was going to ask you why we would call them arousing rituals. I suppose it's because maybe it's the combination of the noise, the singing, the crowd size, which creates this excitement, heightened emotion. Yes. So it can be physically arousing in the sense that some rituals might be painful. They can be stressful, but they can also be psychologically arousing. So if you were to use heart rate monitors, as I've done in my own research, you will see that people who take part in a fire walking ritual, for example, might have over 200 beats per minute. And people who participate in a very emotional football game, they can have similar levels of arousal. What matters here is that this arousal is shared between participants. I suppose one of the other commonalities between sport and religion is superstition, both very common in both. What are the common superstitions that you observed athletes or even fans carrying out in the sporting arena? 
In the sports literature, we see something really interesting. You might expect that more competent athletes will have fewer superstitions because they would rely more on their talent and less on those kinds of individualized rituals. In fact, studies show exactly the opposite. Better athletes, top athletes, tend to have more superstitions and they enact them more frequently than less skilled athletes. And presumably, the reason for this is that those top athletes, they compete for higher stakes and therefore they, they're more stressful, more competitive environments that have more uncertainty, and that's why they turn to ritual. One very famous athlete for those types of superstitions is Rafael Nadal, who is one of the best tennis players in the world. He has an enormous and very elaborate sequence of rituals that he performs in every game that range from paying attention to not stepping on the lines to jumping up and down when the coin is tossed, to always taking two towels, folding one and using the other, having two bottles of water facing precisely the right angle, and then drinking from only one of those bottles of water. Behaviors that resemble Catholics crossing themselves, only much more elaborate, and it goes on and on and on. Many other famous athletes have those types of superstitions. Michael Jordan allegedly always wore his North Carolina shirts underneath his Chicago Bulls shirts. Serena Williams always listens to the same song before we're going to a game, the list is endless. Is there any evidence that sporting rituals actually improve performance or maybe it's perhaps just is. psychological? There is. There actually is. So there are, there are studies that show that when athletes enact rituals like crossing their fingers behind their back, their performance actually improves. And this is not happening through any kind of magical causation. What psychologists are finding there is that the mediating factor is confidence. They're boosting their confidence. They're able to lower stress and therefore perform better. And we have evidence from my own research that the audience also perceives those actions in a similar way. So when we showed clips of basketball players shooting free throws, we only showed the, the shot, but not the outcome of the shot. And we asked people to predict the outcome. And when the players performed those pre-shot rituals, like spinning the ball or kissing the ball, people had a higher expectation that those shots would be successful, whereas they actually were. They were the same shots between conditions. And the most interesting thing is that those results were the same in naive spectators of the game, so people who didn't know much about basketball, but also among fans and even among players themselves. Have you observed that many sports superstitions are post-rationalized, if you like, developed almost by accident as the sports person tries to establish this cause and effect between their performance and perhaps you know, something they ate or wore that day, which they then try to recreate or indeed avoid, as the case may be, in future competition? This is presumably the mechanism that is operating at an awful lot of ritual, not just the superstitions of athletes, but also what's happening perhaps in the mind of those pigeons that Skinner study, but also historically a lot of cultural rituals. So somebody performed that action and soon thereafter it rained and therefore that became part of our rain dance or one of the pigeons turned right instead of left and then a food pellet fell from the box and therefore it just started spinning clockwise and so on and so forth. If we think about ritual in football, why do you think it is that football is the only sport with hooligans in it? I think there's a structural difference in football that makes it unique. And it is the same reason that makes it the king of sports, by far the most popular sport, but also makes it one of the most violent sports or the most violent sport in terms of friendship. And this relates to its ability to create long patterns of shared arousal. There is no other sport, if you think about it, that builds so much tension and does it in a way that is uninterrupted for 45 minutes. So in the studies that we do in my lab and also in actual real-life settings, like football stadiums in Brazil and basketball stadiums in the United States, we see that in sports like basketball or pretty much all of the American sports, they consist in a few seconds or minutes of action interrupted by all kinds of forms of entertainment, cheerleaders or singers and performers and stuff on the screen, but the action is interrupted all the time. And we see the effect of this in people's heart rates. So we look at how arousal is shared between fans and we measure their heart rates. And we see that they begin to synchronize as the game starts. But then as soon as there's an interruption, the synchrony goes away. And then it has to start from scratch. Football, on the other hand, has the ability to build levels of shared arousal that are very similar to some religious rituals. And for that matter, some very high intensity religious rituals like initiation ceremonies. And by virtue of doing this, it creates this sense of bonding, something that some psychologists have called identity fusion with other group members. In fact, in our studies, we see that the higher the synchrony in people's heart rates in a sports game, the more transformative the experience is for them. And the higher the bonding that they feel with other group members and football is unique in doing that 
So with some overlap, let's then talk more about what we might call collective rituals and some of the more extreme ones. I wonder we may have to put a health warning on some of this content, but nevertheless, at a high level, to what extent are extreme rituals about initiation and superstition or what's going on behind them? If there are any general observations that you can make. So first of all, let's clarify that by extreme rituals, we don't mean that these are deviant behaviors or that they're performed by any kind of marginalized groups. In fact, as somebody who has been studying extreme rituals my entire life, I can tell you that the people who take part in those rituals are a very representative part of society. They range from illiterate farmers to college students to medical doctors to politicians to just your everyday segment of society. Now, these types of rituals, historically, I believe, have been one of the key mechanisms for human groups to build bonding and social cohesion. It is no accident that most traditional societies have initiation ceremonies, and it is also no accident that historical studies show that the higher the levels of external threat those societies face, the more intense those rituals. So the greater the need for social cohesion, the more intense these initiation ceremonies are. And this is an indication that they actually produce tangible benefits for these communities. And some of these benefits I've explored in my own research. For example, in Mauritius, we have done studies looking at one of the most intense rituals performed anywhere on the planet, which is the Taiposam Kavati ritual. And we see that people who go through this ritual, they become more generous towards other community members. And we also see that the effects spread to the entire community, not just participants themselves. So the empathic reactions of their families and friends who are watching are also important there. Tell me a little more about the Taiposam Kavadi festival. What does it involve? This is a Hindu, which is performed in obviously in India, but also in Sri Lanka and wherever you have members of the Tamil diaspora. It originated in Tamil Nadu in, in the south of India. Today, you find it across the world. I've been studying this ritual in the island of Mauritius in the Indian Ocean. This is a ritual that is performed in honor of the Hindu god Murugan, and it's a sort of pilgrimage, but it's not your conventional pilgrimage. On the day of Taipusam, people will gather at this riverbank or perhaps the seashore at a body of water or a lake, and they will perform these purification rituals. And then they will go on to pierce themselves with various sharp objects. So these can range from one needle. Most women will typically have one needle through their tongue. Some of them will have a few needles throughout the face, on the forehead perhaps. But then some of the men go as far as to have hundreds of needles. I think the maximum we documented was 600 needles. So every part of the body except for the genitals are covered in needles. Some of them will even have skewers or rods uh, the size of broomsticks pierced through their cheeks. And sometimes you have to bite down at them, otherwise they'll rip your face off due to their weight and, and size. Some of them will have hooks pierced through the skin of their back by which they drag these enormous chariots. These are essentially temples on wheels. Some of those chariots can be so tall that people have to lead the procession with long bamboo poles to lift electricity wires so they can pass underneath. I've seen one of those chariots featuring live trees planted on them. That's the size of these objects that they drag behind them. I've also seen somebody drag an 18-wheeler. It was like a locomotive pulling a train. And on top of that, they also carry the Kavadi on their shoulders. That's what gives this ritual its name. The Kavadi literally means burden in Tamil. And it's another miniature shrine that is decorated with peacock feathers because the peacock is one of the symbols of Morgan and flowers and a small statue of the, of the deity. And those can weigh sometimes up to 60 kilos. And people will lift them, they'll place them on their shoulders, and they'll carry them for the course of an entire day in what in Mauritius is the midsummer tropical sun, uh, walking barefooted on the asphalt. Some of them actually walk on, on shoes made of upright, rusty nails. And by the time they get to the temple, it's already been several hours of no food, no water, uh, this really self-imposed torture. And at that point, they also have to climb 242 steps, carrying their burden to the top of a hill where they make their offerings to Lord Murugan. This is the type of Samkavati festival. I must say, it gives me goosebumps just listening to you describe it. It's so extreme. But what, what's the signaling value then of pain and suffering in this ritual? It's more than goosebumps. So I've seen this ritual many times by now, and I always feel it in my stomach when you see these piercings and when these people start screaming, and especially the women start screaming just by looking at their sons and their husbands and their loved ones suffer like this. It's not very easy to watch. So you asked me about the signaling values. One anthropological perspective that seeks to describe the function of those rituals is called costly signaling theory. 
According to this perspective, and there's a very interesting semiological similarity here between the origins of the theory, which come from Darwin's own work, who wondered why extravagant traits evolve in species like peacocks, the peacock's tail. So it's very interesting that the Kavadi ritual also involves the peacock, which is the symbol of Lord Morgan, out of pure coincidence, of course. But signaling theory argues that some extravagant traits, whether those are physical traits in, in other species, but when we look at humans specifically, we talk about behavioral traits. They can serve as communication devices that are very useful to both the sender and the receiver because they communicate reliably certain underlying traits. In this case, the trait we're presumably talking about is loyalty to the group. And the idea is that only very committed individuals would be willing to voluntarily undergo these extremely painful activities to be members of the group. It is the same logic that you find behind any kind of tribal initiation ceremony or a gang initiation or perhaps a military initiation or what we see in some North American fraternities. If I have to put a skewer through my cheeks to be a member of that group, then you can be pretty damn sure that I'm very serious about that commitment. And this so, is something that is useful to both the sender, because as I do this, this raises my status within this community. I've demonstrated now my loyalty, and people perceive me differently. But it's also very useful to the community itself, because they can now judge my level of commitment, and they can decide whether they want to cooperate with me or whether they want to accept me as a member, as opposed to somebody else. And this would have been very important in the kinds of contexts in early human societies, where people will have to decide who they're going to go hunting with, if they're going to be facing a large predator that potentially hurt them, or who they're going to be going to war with. This is a mechanism for selecting the most committed, loyal, and in some respect also physically fit individuals. I'm wondering then, what are the social dynamics around participation or lack of? Are these rituals typically voluntary or obligatory? You find both in the anthropological record. The kinds of rituals that have been studied have always been voluntary ones, simply because for me, the puzzle there is even more pronounced. Having said this, this is not very different from other kinds of rituals where people force their own offspring to undergo these initiations. It's still the same question. From an evolutionary perspective, you're still compromising your reproductive potential by having your children undertake those risks as if you would yourself. You are listening to A Load of BS with me, Daniel Ross. Now, before we continue, I must mention my sponsor, Crankwheel. How many times have you asked people if they can see your screen or hear your voice on Zoom calls, or had to spend 10 minutes while the other person figures out how to connect? Well, with Crankwheel, you can instantly share your screen and monitor engagement, project HD videos, or even grant control to the other person. Crankwheel is used by sales teams in solar, insurance, digital marketing and finance, amongst other industries, and it's just great for onboarding new customers, particularly to reduce churn rates. You simply share a link during a phone call and the other person enters on any browser, any device without registration or installation. Now, a load of BS subscribers can use Crankwheel Unlimited for two months by signing up at get.crankwheel.com forward slash load of BS. Now on with the show. What are your observations then from start to finish in extreme rituals in terms of how people change emotionally, physiologically? We have measured physiological responses in the context of those rituals, and they never cease to amaze me in terms of their sheer intensity. So when we look at heart rates, for example, I've documented levels of heart rate responses that I thought would, would cause someone to have a heart attack. So we're seeing people have 230 beats per minute in the context of some of these rituals. We have also measured electrodermal activity, another measure of stress. And we see that on that day, people have orders of magnitude higher arousal in the context of anything else they do. Astonishingly, though, we also documented the health impacts of some of those rituals. And we see that that stress very quickly goes away. And in fact, just a few weeks after their participation, not only 
these people get subjective health benefits. But in fact, the more intense their participation, the more pronounced those benefits are. So the more needles they put in their body, and we have measured the number of needles, we have also measured the physiological responses. Both of these things correlate with the perceived improvement they get in their health. And we think there are two kinds of mechanisms underlying these effects. There are physiological mechanisms. So people have talked, for example, about stress inoculation. So sometimes engaging in highly stressful activities in a context that is controllable and that is predictable, much like when we do when we watch horror films, for example. It can be very stressful, but it happens within a safe context. And that's what these rituals are like. But also at a social level, we know that these rituals serve to reinforce social connections. And we know from medical anthropology research that these types of connections, so social support networks, play a fundamental role in things like immune system function and things like even blood pressure. So anthropologists have actually documented that those who have more, who have tighter social support networks actually experience lower blood pressure, presumably because they have a larger network of people to turn to in terms of need, and that makes them feel more secure. I'd love you all to tell us a little about the firewalking ritual in the village of San Pedro Manrique in Spain. I know that's another one that you've studied intensely and I found fascinating to study as well. So I have studied firewalking rituals in many places. Perhaps the most intense of those firewalking rituals happens in Spain. This is a place in Soria, a little village called uh, San Pedro Manrique. This village has 600 inhabitants, but on June 23rd, exactly at midnight, you have over 3,000 people gathered from the entire area and beyond to witness this ritual. They've actually built this amphitheater made of stone that is only used for this ritual once a year. So that shows you the importance of this ceremony. And what happens there is that they will gather about two tons of oak wood and it will burn very precisely timed so it's ready to be made into a, a long bed of coals. And we have measured the temperatures there over 750 degrees Celsius, which is enough to melt aluminum, by the way. And on that fire, people will take off their shoes, they will take somebody on their back and they will carry them through the fire, just stomping on, on this fire. And, and you see the sparks fly and, and just sitting anywhere near this fire is like sticking your head into an oven. Have you ever participated in it yourself or you just stood there and observed? I have participated in one of those rituals, not in Spain, because the ritual in Spain is only for locals. It's very specifically for people who are descended from the village. But this was in Mauritius when I was doing fieldwork a few years later. Some people from the local community suggested that I might want to join them since I've been living with them. And I politely refused. I said that I don't want to pretend to be one of you. I'm just here to learn about your way of life and your rituals. And they left it at that, so I thought it was off the hook. But on the day of the ritual, at some point I realized that the entire community had colluded. And they put me in a position where somebody just said, turn around now, and I was suddenly facing the entire village, and there was no backing out there. So I did it. And how was the experience? It was very much like people describe it, meaning everything went into slow motion. It was just a few seconds, but it felt like possibly minutes. I felt every single step. I felt the adrenaline rush. And something that was very interesting to me was that this rush lasted for hours and potentially days. Also, after my performance, after my walk, people came to me and started asking me the kinds of questions that I would typically ask them. So they, they asked me what made me do it, how it felt, whether I thought I was going to do it again, and all those kinds of questions. So in that sense, it was very interesting being in their shoes, being informally interviewed by someone about my own participation. I can imagine inadvertently, despite the fact that you hadn't volunteered it, maybe you took a lot from it being able to step into their shoes. Absolutely. As an anthropologist, it's, uh, there's a lot of value in experiencing something like what your participants are experiencing. And I'm saying something like because clearly I'm not a member of that community. So it doesn't mean exactly the same for me as it does for them. Also, I'm no longer there. So somebody who does it in that context and maintains relations with the members of that community, there are a lot of implications for them that are not here for me. But certainly as an anthropologist, it was a very valuable experience. And in fact, I was surprised to see the effects that it had not just on myself, but also on the other members of the community. I do think that after engaging in this ritual, people treated me with more respect. Not that they were lacking respect. This was a very welcoming community. But I could see that doing this was a signal to them that I was taking their cultural practices seriously. 
Yeah, I can imagine there was a tighter emotional bond above and beyond conventional respect. We've talked more about rituals for good, but I'm curious to just touch on rituals for bad. And we talked earlier a little about religion as a comparison with sport as an arousing ritual. Of course, religion is, of course, one of the most powerful collective rituals that we know, sometimes can be extreme. But do you think religion is probably the most obvious example of a ritual which brings out the worst in us? There's certainly a dark side of ritual. And this is a side that is not very often discussed. Perhaps part of it is that it doesn't make such an appealing story most of the time. But I think one of the main reasons is also that it's methodologically more difficult to study. It's easier for me to study the effects of ritual on pro-social behaviors than to set up a study where people are encouraged to murder each other after performing a ritual. So obviously, that's one of the reasons. Having said that, the inevitable flip side of creating and strengthening the bonds between a group is that we exclude everybody else, right? There's no in-group without an out-group. And traditionally, ritual has definitely played a role in this. We know that every society that's gone to war has a set of rituals that are associated with warfare. I don't know that religion is the best manifestation, at least it's just as good as any other. And certainly a lot of crimes have been committed in the name of religion and rituals have played a role in those. But for me, the first association that comes to mind when I think of the dark side of ritual are Nazi parades. A lot of collective rituals, especially the massive, highly arousing ones, they have the capacity to elicit what some sociologists have called collective effervescence. I think this is the kind of feeling that we tap onto when we measure shared arousal, when we use heart rate monitors to measure shared arousal in a crowd. And this is this feeling of goosebumps that you get in the back of your neck. When you're a member of a huge crowd, whether it's in the context of a football stadium or in the context of a march or a political rally, and you have everybody singing, chanting, moving, and synchrony, there's something really visceral about this moment that makes you feel that you're one with this crowd. Your sense of self and your sense of group membership becomes one, becomes fused. And this is why some psychologists call this identity fusion. Now, this can happen in different kinds of contexts. And what effervescence is very good at doing is amplifying whatever context is provided. There was actually a study that I was part of in the Czech Republic where we brought people into a lab and we induced arousal, raw physical arousal. We just had them exercise. We get their heart rates up. And then we use two different contexts. And those contexts were video games in this case. And after that, people had to, to engage in a pro-social behavior. And what we see is that when arousal is coupled with a pro-social stimulus, then the more of that arousal you share, the more pro-social you become. But when arousal is coupled with an antisocial stimulus, the more of it you share, the more antisocial you become. So you would expect that in the context of a ritual, like let's say a sports ritual, the higher the arousal and the more of that arousal you partake in as a spectator, the closer you feel to other fans of your team, but presumably also the more hostile you begin to feel towards fans of the opponent team. And the same applies to political, to religious, to any type of other ritual. And again, political leaders know this very well. And this is why they have used those rituals in the context of some of the darkest moments of human history. I often refer to collective rituals as social technologies. As any technology, they can be used for better or for worse. I was curious what the particular characteristics of the Nazi parades were, which you just mentioned, which made them so powerful. They obviously embodied some of the aspects which you just described. Was there anything particular which makes those stand out? There's a lot of research on the role of synchrony in inducing group cohesion. We know, for example, that marching together, as opposed to just walking together freely, increases rapport between individuals. There's a historian called William McNeil, who wrote a book about keeping in sync. I think that was the title. McNeil was a World War II veteran, and he described his experience doing drill. And he started wondering why soldiers all over the world throughout history engage in drill. They just march together. It seems utterly pointless. Maybe it served a function some time ago when they had to practice maneuvering in the battlefield, but in the modern context, marching in the battlefield is just suicidal in the context of long-range projectiles. And the answer he had was that, and judging from his experience, this marching together produced what he called muscular bonding. By moving as one, people started feeling as one. And that was very important for the morale of his battalion and for their sense of oneness, of of being a group rather than just a bunch of individuals. Now take this and magnify it in the context of a Nazi rally. 
and where you have tens of thousands of individuals engaging in actions that require extraordinary synchrony. And you can't feel feeling when you're part of this crowd, when you already buy into the ideological framework that is provided, moving in synchrony, chanting in synchrony with this group under enormous symbolic markers, like big flags and colors and everything else that signifies that you are all the same. This is the bread and butter of any fascist regime. Do you think nowadays, we're looking back at the past, we're looking back into the history of religion, going back to the time of the Second World War, but coming back to the present day, do you think that we're seeing new important rituals emerging from digital interactions that, say, didn't exist 10 or 20 years ago? Absolutely. This is one of the indicators. This is some of the evidence that we have that ritual is so deeply ingrained in us. Even as religion in some parts of the world might be receding, there's a big debate about this, about what we exactly mean by religion, whether new forms of spirituality are much different than more traditional forms. We see that even in contexts where people do not explicitly subscribe to any religious ideology, they need ritual as much as ever. In fact, we might need ritual more in a modern world where we depend less on these traditional values and structures because we still have the same fundamental needs. Needs for coping with things like grief and anxiety, needs for finding social connection. And these are precisely things that rituals are good in helping us with. Do you think digital interactions have the right conditions to establish successful rituals? Can they have the same emotional intensity as face-to-face interactions? I think that as we see in in every other domain, digital interactions are often better than no interactions, but they're never at the same level as face-to-face interactions. We just haven't evolved to engage in those types of interactions. I have no doubt that they will become better and better as the technology advances. Right now that I'm speaking to you, you you're frozen, actually. So imagine what that means in the context of ritual, where, for example, synchrony might be of paramount importance. If indeed synchrony is one of the key aspects of building rapport in the context of ritual, and in fact, we have done studies where we show that when we manipulate synchrony, the lack of synchrony can have the opposite effect. So when we engage in these activities with others that are supposed to be synchronous but fail to be, when people have make mistakes, imagine this as dancing with a partner who's not really good and forgets the steps. Sometimes those can have the opposite effect. Instead of coming out feeling more bonded, you feel less bonded. Maybe we've all been there on the dance floor once in a while. (laughs) Absolutely, yes. Even things like bandwidth, the quality of the interaction from a technical perspective can hinder these effects. I do not think that you can have the, the full potential virtual unfold through digital interactions. Maybe one day. Yeah. I mean, particularly since the coronavirus, I don't know whether you've observed or we are observing generally alternative social dynamics and patterns in the way that we interact now that far more of what we're doing is digital. Maybe it's too early to pass judgment. Oh, no, absolutely. We saw this from the first day, right from the beginning of the pandemic. One of the biggest changes that I observed, presumably because that's the kind of thing I pay attention to, was the change in all sorts of traditional rituals. Because one thing about ritual is that it tends to be unchanged, at least it's considered to be unchanged. But at the same time, it's so deeply important to people that when they cannot perform it in any other way, they will adapt it. So from the beginning of this pandemic, we've seen things like drive-through birthday celebrations. We've seen things like drive-through funerals or memorials online rituals. In Italy, we saw people who created long poles made of bamboo sticks so they could reach across their balcony and make toasts and cling their glasses with their neighbors. We saw officials march under people's windows and sort of serenade them to make them feel cared for. And we, of course, saw crowds in big cities come out at the same time and cheer for healthcare workers. And that not only became a signal of solidarity with health workers, but it became a signal of solidarity overall. As these cities reverberated every day with the sound of pots and hands. People felt that they're in this together. They would overcome this together. So absolutely, there are are even studies that show that as the number of cases increased, it had a predictable effect on the number of searches for prayer and other types of rituals on Google. I wonder whether historically rituals tend to mutate over time anyway. And perhaps Corona then is a good example of very particular conditions which force us to adapt. But have you observed more generally over time the way that rituals change over generations? Yes, absolutely. Rituals do change across time, especially some of these very old traditions that I studied, that some of them go thousands of years back. It is very interesting that in the eyes of their performers, they're perceived to be unchanged. But then historically, we can find those changes. Even as I often pointed those changes out to them, they would still insist that, okay, they would brush this away as just one trivial example. The ritual itself never changes. The idea behind it never changes. But a lot of the time, actually, they do. In Greece, in the context of a particular tradition that I was studying, I saw that they used to sacrifice buffalo. But to 
today that they sacrifice sheep. So I, I asked people whether it's possible to change anything in the ritual. And the owner insisted that no, it's absolutely impossible. You cannot change anything. I said, what about this? You used to sacrifice a buffalo, now it's a sheep. And in some other rituals, this has even been replaced by vegetarian sacrifices. And they'll brush this away and say, okay, but this one is for practical reasons. But other than that, the ritual has always been unchanged. And this is important for ritual because it gives us a sense of continuity and it gives us a sense of membership in a community that is essentially not just bigger than ourselves, but it's even bigger than our social world because it expands all the way back to our ancestors. It's bigger than present society itself. Let me ask you a final question or area of question, which is about your measurement, how you measure your studies and experiments. So tell me a little about, you know, how do you measure rituals? How do you set benchmarks? What are you actually looking to understand in your studies? So the process that I'm following in my work, and I think some of it is what sets my work apart from previous work, is that I have a very interdisciplinary and very holistic approach, but also an approach that is slow and systematic, meaning there's no single study that can tell us what we're really interested in. We have to look at a cumulative body of research, and this allows us to break ritual down into its component parts and then go out trying to study each one of those parts individually. And we can do it in the lab where we have the luxury of manipulating variables and looking at, let's say, the effects of synchrony or the effects of anxiety on ritualization. But then we have to go back into the field, into real life context, and find ways to incorporate our measurements in real life situations. And when you do that, you don't have the luxury of manipulating variables anymore. You just have to find naturally occurring variables, let's say the same community engaging in both high intensity and low-intensity rituals, and then compare what they do after each one of those. These are the kind of things that we've done. Or the same people, what their anxiety levels are right after going into a temple compared to another situation. And this is another example of what we've done. When it comes to outcomes, to prosocial outcomes, we can look at things like how much money they give to charity, how much money they're willing to trust each other with. We can look at perceptual level changes, how they judge others based on their ritual participation. We can look at demographic factors. We see who is more likely to take part in those rituals. It turns out that those of lower socioeconomic status are just as likely to take part in those rituals, but also they take part in more intense forms. So they use their own embodied capital, in a sense. They use their blood, sweat, and tears, which is the only capital they have, to raise their status. Whereas more affluent individuals in the same community, they also participate, but they do so in other ways. Maybe they spend more money to sponsor more elaborate cavities that they carry or more elaborate meals in the context of the same ritual and so on and so forth. So in short, my approach involves taking the lab into the field, but also then bringing the field back into the lab. And this is a continuous circle. Do you tend to share back your results with the participants who you've studied? Are they interested in seeing what you've discovered? Does that have any impact then on the ritual, by the way? Yes, so this is both something that is often an obligation for anthropologists, not an institutional obligation, speaking from a moral perspective, but there's also a danger to this. I always like to share my results with my participants, and sometimes this leads to uh, fascinating conversations. And when we measured heart rate responses in the firewalking ritual, before the ritual, participants struggled to explain how they felt, but they did say that they felt this feeling of togetherness, and they would say things like, I don't know how to describe it, but it's like being one with this group. And when I went back and showed them graphs from their heart rates and how they converged with each other. They pointed to the, those graphs and they said, this is how I feel. They used the word resonance, which, which was very interesting to me because that was one of the technical terms that some of the physicists that we were working with in terms of developing those measurements had mentioned. So I made a lot of sense. At the same time, I am aware of the fact that by going into any kind of setting as a social scientist and by discussing those things with your participants, you might sometimes affect their views of their own rituals. And that's not necessarily what you want to do. From one perspective, ideally, you want to be a fly on the wall. You want to just observe things without having any effect on those communities, which, of course, is not a realistic expectation. It's impossible. We always have an effect on the people we study. So you just have to try to minimize this as much as you can. But at the same time, I do think you have an obligation to share your results with those communities. It's a balance. I was wondering how you minimize the impact of your presence and interventions on the behaviors of the participants throughout the process. <laughs> Are you quite deliberate about that? As an anthropologist, the most common strategy that we follow is just to spend a lot of time with those communities. If I walk into a Hindu temple for the first time in a remote island, everybody's eyes are going to be on me. They're going to be very conscious of my presence. Uh, a lot of them might feel awkward. If I take out a camera and start taking pictures, they're going to feel more awkward or intrigued or whatever they feel, but they will have some effect on their behavior. Now, if I stay there for six months, 
as I come to know these people and take part in all of their ceremonies, eventually they will stop paying attention to me. They will feel more relaxed and I will be less intrusive. So this is the way anthropologists approach this. All of this research is embedded in long-term fieldwork, where we call parachuting it into the wild. Got it. So I hear, Demetrius, that you've got a new book coming out in June next year. Tell me a little about that. It's called Ritual, and the subtitle is How Seemingly Senseless Acts Make Life Worth Living. And this is a book that is based on two decades of research on ritual. It documents a lot of my field experiments, but also laboratory experiments, and it synthesizes work from a wide range of disciplines, from traditional anthropology and working with some of these fascinating rituals like firewalking, and body piercing to psychological and neurological insights. Great. Well, look forward to that coming out next year. And that will be a great accompaniment, I hope, for many people who've enjoyed this podcast. I'll be sure to share that with everyone when it's published. So thank you for sharing that. Shall we do some quick fire questions? Sure. Fire away. (laughs) Is the right answer. Okay. What's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? I don't know if this is the kindest thing anybody's ever done in my life for me, but I'll point to something very kind that I heard in the course of my fieldwork. One of the elders of this community, when I, after I had gone back and related to our conversation, I had shared my results with them. One of the elders of the community stood up and said, I would like to thank you for coming here. And I was taken aback. I said, why are you thanking me? I am the one who's supposed to be thanking you. I came here. You were so welcoming. You hosted me. You allowed me to do my research. I'm the one who's getting all the benefits. And he said, we want to thank you because by coming here and asking us all those questions, you're making us ask more questions to ourselves. I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing related to our conversation about potentially changing things in the field, but I felt that that was just one of the kindest things I've ever heard. It sounds a pretty healthy thing to do to have some reflection and introspection. So that's great. What's your most powerful memory? Actually, some of the kinds of rituals that I study make for some pretty indelible memories. So once you've seen somebody put a skewer through his cheeks, and once you've looked into their eyes, and you've seen that tremendous level of suffering, but at the same time, determination and perseverance, I think that's an image that you can never forget. It's a slight digression, but there is this curious about the borderline between pleasure and pain in these contexts. Maybe it's pain and suffering first, and the reward comes after, rather than there's sort of a simultaneous... A lot of people have asked me whether there's some sort of masochistic aspect to those rituals. And it is my conviction that there isn't. At least the kinds of rituals that I study, I've never heard anybody who goes into those rituals because they get pleasure out of the pain. In fact, when you ask them to describe their participation, they describe it in terms of suffering. Among a community of Greek firewalkers that I work with, they use the word strain. That's how they describe it. Others in, in Mauritius, for example, they often describe it as sacrifice. You perform a sacrifice with your own body. So it's not that they derive pleasure out of suffering. Of course, once you have completed your ordeal, there's a lot of satisfaction that comes with it. But it's a fundamentally different thing than saying that somebody engages in these painful activities because they get a kick out of it. There's nothing like that happening, at least in the context of the ceremonies that I have been studying. Okay, back to the quickfire questions. Tell us something interesting about yourself most people don't know. My father is an electrician by training, and he would fix everything in our house. So I learned a lot from him, and that's what I do. I fix things, I make things, you know, ranging from furniture to kitchen cabinets. Nice, that's great. Which book do you gift most regularly? One of my favorite books is by Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler, and it's called Connected. And it's one of those books that have, that have brought a new perspective when I read it. It's about the power of social networks, not in the modern sense of Twitter and Facebook, but more literally, the networks between people and how things like not just diseases, epidemiologically speaking, but also ideas and behaviors can spread. Wow, I'm going to check that one out. That sounds really fascinating. What's your desert island music? My favorite music is rock music, and that's the music I would take on any island, desert or not. Any examples? Favorite bands? Classical hard rock music. I grew up listening to bands like Guns N' Roses and Iron Maiden, that kind of stuff. Great stuff. You may have in part answered this in terms of your DIY work, but winding down away from work, tell me a bit more about your hobbies. I used to do a lot of photography at a serious amateur level. In recent years, I don't do as much as I would like, and I have a huge backlog of pictures to sort out and process. Presently, my favorite hobby is uh, DIY work. But I imagine on your studies, photography must play an important part. Yes. So certainly most of the pictures that I have are from traveling around the world and especially doing fieldwork. I have several dozens of thousands of pictures from my field. 
Perhaps the obvious final question for you. What are your own rituals in your daily life? It's very funny when you're a ritual expert and they ask you this question <laughs> and you don't have a rapid response. One of the domains where I've seen the importance of rituals in my life has actually been the context of sports that we've been discussing. As somebody who doesn't have any supernatural commitments, it never ceases to amaze me when I, in terms of introspection, the kind of commitment and loyalty that I have towards my home team, which is Pauk Thessaloniki. I still watch every one of their games. And whenever I go to Greece, I never pass an opportunity to participate in those collective rituals that involve a lot of flares and torches and jumping up and down and chanting in, in synchrony and I still get those goosebumps as I did when I was 15. I mean, from watching on TV, I think that Greece is probably one of those countries which is probably most ritualistic when it comes to football and the atmospheres look at least pretty exciting. It is, and it's also one of the examples of the two sides of these ritualized events, both in terms of strong loyalty, but also in terms of occasional violence. Well, with that, Dimitris, let me thank you hugely for taking us into the wild world of rituals, which I suspect many of us know rather little about. I think it's one thing in behavioral science, diving into, say, the unusually rational behaviors of investors punting on the stock market or consumers behaving in unpredictable ways shopping on the high street. But in particular, to learn about some of the most time-honored, intense, extreme rituals taking place in small pockets of our planet is quite eye-opening. And certainly in such a technological age, these stories remind us where we come from and connect our present with our past. And so for sharing all of that, I thank you very much, Dimitris. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Next time on A Load of BS, I'll be talking money with Jeff Chrysler. Jeff wrote the book Small Change, Money Mishaps and How to Avoid Them with Dan Ariely. Jeff's a qualified lawyer, stand-up comedian and now head of BS at J.P. Morgan Chase Bank. You know, when it comes to money, we make absurd decisions about how to spend it all the time. Whether this is buying a £3.50 latte at Starbucks while we price compare groceries to save 10 pence on apples or bolting on our special car cleaning kit for £250 after spending 15000 on a new vehicle or hopelessly overbidding on eBay auctions because we really feel attached to that item in question. We are irrational, emotional and flawed creatures. So how on earth are we supposed to value things? Well, we'll be discussing this question and a whole lot more BS with Jeff. Money has never been so much fun to talk about, so I really hope you'll join me. And if you haven't already, please hit the subscribe or follow button wherever you listen to your podcast and do subscribe at aloadofbs.substack.com so you get access to all my articles too. Till next time.